Thank you, guys. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians chapter 1, as we begin to walk through this letter. Uh, just to let you know, uh, it's been intentional that I'm, I'm coming up on four years here. Uh, that time seems to have flown. I don't know if it has for you. Maybe it's felt like it's just dragged on forever. Like, when is this ever going to be over? Uh, but for me, it seems to have gone by very quickly. Uh, to be here almost four years in August... And to know that in those four years, I have in, listen, I don't intentionally avoid teaching parts of the Bible, but I do try to camp on areas that I feel like maybe haven't had a lot of time spent on them. If you remember when I first got here, we walked through, uh, on Wednesdays, we walked through the minor prophets for like the first few months I was here, had a great time walking through that. Um, we've done some overviews. We've gotten done doing overviews of big, large books like Exodus and Genesis, um, but there's been a group of books that I have not uh, have not taught all the way through since I've been here in these four years. Um, and one of them is Colossians. And it's not because I don't like it, it's just because I know that a lot of times people spend a majority of their time in, in letters like Philippians and Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians. So I wanted to expose us to some of the lesser known books before we jump into some of the more well-known. And so I decided that this is a perfect time for us to walk through Colossians because we live in a day and age, even now, where people question the sufficiency of Jesus. People question whether it's all him or whether there's something else in addition. I know we don't say that with our mouths, but a lot of times we live it out. That, yeah, Jesus is important, but he's just part of the picture. And I want to present to you today that in the letter of Colossians, Paul is unashamedly and unapologetically thrusting these believers and these readers into the truth that everything, centers around Jesus, everything. There's not a single area of life that doesn't center around Jesus. And I believe he writes Colossians in order to demonstrate that because the Colossian church was being infiltrated and impacted by other philosophies and other religions that sought to turn people's focus away from the supremacy of Christ and onto other things or other people. And I feel that's helpful for us to walk through because we live in a day and age where other loves call to us to follow after them and to love them more than Jesus or to add things to the gospel. And I want to tell you this morning on behalf of God's word and especially on Paul's writing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient truth for us this morning. There is nothing else we need. There is nothing else that is of better uh, supremacy or importance to us. Jesus alone and the good news of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension is central to everything that we do, and it must be the basis of everything we do as a church. So in Colossians, I want to show you that over the course of the next few weeks. But this morning, I want to walk you through these first opening verses, which is Paul's introduction to the church at Colossae. So I'm going to read the first couple of verses, but we're going to break it down a little more intently. Let's see here. It is 1110. Okay. So we're going to try to break this down intently while also covering a lot of ground. So uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to do church aerobics with me. We're going to stand up real quick, and we're going to, out of honor of God's word, we're going to stand and we're going to read together from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, and he says, Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless the reading of your word, and we ask you to help us to understand it. And Father, as we study these words, we cannot understand them apart from your Spirit's working. So Father, uh, we ask you to teach us this morning that as the Spirit takes these verses and applies them to our hearts and, and sheds light on these verses, Father, that you would help us to accordingly give you the praise that you deserve and walk in this light. So Father, we need you to feed us this morning. I pray you'll do so. We thank you that your word strengthens and nourishes our spiritual life. And that, Father, it is the food for our souls. May we give you praise as we study. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated for just a moment. I'm sure you could use some background because just so you know, we make a lot of errors when it comes to studying the Bible if we don't understand that there's a context to everything that's being written. This was written in the first century, uh, I believe most likely in the early 60s AD, and it was written to a particular group of Christians in Colossae. Uh, it was written, we're told, most likely during Paul's imprisonment. Uh, we see that in places like chapter 4, verse 3 and 18, where he talks about being in prison. He talks about his chains. And so Paul wrote it while he was in prison, I believe likely in Roman prison. And he is there, uh, and it's probably his first Roman imprisonment. He had two separate Roman imprisonments. Uh, and uh, the first one, you can tell, was unique because he was able to have visitors come and go. His second Roman imprisonment, he didn't get those benefits. And here we see from his letter that he's receiving visitors. They're coming and going. So this seems to be during his first Roman imprisonment, which would put it around 60 uh, to 62 A.D. Colossians is often linked with the book of Ephesians and the letter to Philemon. And they're called prison epistles because they were written while he was in prison. They were written around about the same time. And they were carried at the same time to the churches. We know this because you see uh, references in each of these uh, to Epaphras, who we're going to see in just a minute. Uh, it's also linked to Tychicus and Onesimus, who carried the letter to the churches on behalf of Paul. And so Colossians is linked together with uh, Philemon and Ephesians. So when you read them, you can read them together and kind of see the viewpoint that Paul has at the same time. Now, the letter he writes centers around a confrontation of what has now been called the Colossian heresy. Now, in the letter, he doesn't tell us exactly what the heresy is, but the heresy is some type of mysticism, and asceticism. Asceticism is the idea of self-denial, that, that you can kind of earn spiritual favor by denying yourself certain things. And so this, this heresy that's infiltrated the church seems to wrap around this kind of mystic spiritual life and this ascetic religion where of self-denial, I, I get closer to God if I just deny myself stuff. And so this religion seemed to urge the elite spiritual, uh, the spiritual elite in the church to press towards some type of fullness that you were lacking something and you needed to pursue a greater fullness and you could get that by studying under the right teachers. And if you came to the right teachers and learned from them, you could gain a greater fullness. Remember, this is, being, this is a letter being sent to the church in Colossae made up of believers in Christ. And this is infiltrated into the church. And Paul writes in order to remind the believers in Colossae of the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. Now we know from studies of the time 
that Colossae was made up of Gentile and Jewish populations. It had both. And actually, when you look at the heresy that's described in this letter, it seems to contain nuggets and bits of uh, Jewish Old Testament uh, law observance and also mystical pagan religion seeming to be mixed with Christianity. And so we shouldn't be surprised that that would take place in a place like Colossae. The breakup of the book or the letter is basically the first part of it is Paul sharing the gospel. Just so you know, when you read Paul's letters, that's pretty much what he does. He begins his letters by sharing the gospel. He doesn't assume everybody understands it. He shares it so that everybody can be clear what the basis is. And then after he shares the gospel, he'll use that to address whatever the need is in the church. He'll practically apply it to them. So the first part we're looking at is the basis of the gospel that sets the foundation for what he's going to call them to do later in the letter. And this first part of the letter to the Colossians focuses on the redemptive plan of God in Jesus. What God has done on behalf of sinners like us. He starts in verse 1. He identifies himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We're told in chapter 4, verse 18, that Paul says he wrote it with his own hand. So Paul is saying that he is writing a personal letter to the church, and he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We're told that he is also, uh, Timothy is also uh, helping in this endeavor. And we're told the audience to who it's written to, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So he's writing to Christians at the church in Colossae in order to correct this heresy that is infiltrating. Now what's interesting is if you study Colossae, there's a few things that should stick out to you. Number one, we don't have any evidence from the scriptures that Paul had ever been there before he wrote this letter. So it seems that Paul is writing to people he had never met, a church he had never been to, that wasn't founded by him in order to correct and encourage. Now it's interesting. I believe that's also why Paul starts with the fact that he's an apostle. Right? Because if you've never been there, and you've never met them, what's one thing that might come up as a challenge? Well, who is this guy? Why should we listen to him? So Paul says from the very beginning, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This wasn't his decision to be an apostle. He was called by God. And that sets the authority structure. That's why he has the right to speak to them and to write to them because God had called him to be an apostle by his will in order to encourage and correct in the church. Now for Colossae, Colossae used to be at one point a great major city. But we find out that by the time Paul writes this, the, the city had lost its, most of its glory because of a massive earthquake that had taken place. And so this used to be a city that was of major importance, and now it's one that has lost a lot of its glory. It's also a relatively new church. Most believe that this church was started by a convert of Paul's named Epaphras, who's mentioned here. That the church was started by him because he most likely had been in Ephesus when Paul was preaching the gospel and then trusted in Jesus and then went back to his hometown in Colossae and began preaching the gospel and started the church. Which means that the church in Colossae is a relatively new church. Okay, now if you have a relatively new church, what issues might arise? Well, those in the church 
probably aren't as mature in their faith or stable in what they believe. And as such, any type of heresy or wind of doctrine that would come in, they would be more likely to be swayed by it. Hence why Paul is writing to them in the midst of this. They would be open and ripe for, uh, to follow after false teaching of self-denial and mysticism. Things that might sound good to them. And so Paul is writing because of his great care for them. Notice how he addresses them, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, he says, even though they had never met, and even though he had never been there, guess how Paul views them? He says, you are my brothers in Christ. See, when we trust in Jesus, we don't, we don't just simply come into God's kingdom. We join a family. You are my brothers and sisters. You all may be proud of that or you may be trying to uh, get away from that. But you are my brothers and sisters. You are my family, my spiritual family. Because if you're in Jesus and I'm in Jesus, we are part of God's family. And the beautiful thing is, regardless of our backgrounds, upbringings, when you are in Christ, you are part of a spiritual family that God makes you a part of and adopts you into. And so even though Paul had not met them, he's able to say, you are my brothers, and with that, express an affection that he has for them, a love that he has for them. Our relationship as Christians to each other is based on what Jesus has done in our union with him. And we truly can say this morning that as Christians, we are family. And Paul expresses that to demonstrate his affection for them. Then he goes on in verse 3. And I want to show you that in this introduction, it's broken up into two prayers. The first one is a prayer of thanksgiving. The second one is a prayer of intercession. It helps me to know as a believer that one of my goals is to pray for you and you to pray for me and to continue to pray that God would intercede in our lives. Sometimes we can neglect that. We get busy praying for ourselves and forget to pray for each other. Paul demonstrates the importance of prayer for each other as believers. And he starts in verse 3 with the prayer of thanksgiving. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So how does he thank God? By praying. He thanks God by praying. And he doesn't just pray. He prays for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Very interesting. Who gets credit for the Colossian believers' faith and love? God does, because Paul's giving God the thanks. We thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. So just so you know, God gets the things. Because it wasn't them that did it. It was God who did it. He says, we thank God since we've heard of your faith and we've seen your love for all the saints. What a, what a huge encouragement to the church it must have been for Paul to say, we've heard of how much you love Jesus and love each other. And we give thanks to God for that. Folks, I'll tell you what, we, we might as well just change the Fairhaven vision statement to this. If Fairhaven could be known for how much we love Jesus and love one another, whew, that'd be a good thing to be known by. If we could be known as those who love Jesus and love one another, 
And Paul says, we've heard it of you, and we give thanks to God. So God gets the credit for their faith. He gets the credit for their love because he's the one who produces all of it. Why? Because God is the only one who can save sinners and cause them to live like this. You and I don't do this naturally. God has to interact. He has to intervene. If we're ever going to have faith in Christ and love for one another, it's going to be because God did something to us to cause us to do that. So he gets all the, he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory because he alone can rescue sinners from the depths of their sin. And Paul expresses that in his thanksgiving to God through prayer. He goes on. He says in verse 5, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven... Okay, everybody, there are three uh, qualifiers that are listed here that are very important. You've probably heard them together. Faith, love, and hope. These seem to be the central virtues of what it means to be a believer. This is what's supposed to mark the believer's life. Faith, hope, and love. They're connected, not just here, but in other parts of the scriptures. And here, Paul talks about the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And that hope is not a, oh, I wish something would take place. This hope is the certainty of faith in, in the object of God, right? That he is our hope. He is our hope. Not my doctrine, not my behavior. My hope is God himself laid up for you in heaven. See, faith in Jesus Christ is what's primary, is what matters. Not faith in your faith or belief or not your faith in a set of doctrines or truths or a creed. Salvation comes by believing in Jesus. You with me? There's a difference. Not faith in your belief, not faith in your adherence to certain doctrines. Faith is belief in Jesus, the person and who he is. And Paul sees that to be true of these Colossian believers and he gives thanks to God and talks about the hope they have in heaven because of what God has done. He says, of this you have heard before the word of the truth, uh, before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you. So he says, that all of this is the result of them having heard the word of truth, the gospel. And I want you to notice he doesn't say a gospel. He says the gospel. There is only one gospel, only one good news of Jesus, and that's all that matters. And Paul preached it, Peter preached it, all the apostles preached it. Today we still preach the same one gospel, the same one word of truth that is the only way that people can be saved. They heard it. They believed in Christ, they trusted him, and I want you to notice how he phrases this. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, verse 6, which has come to you. How glorious is it that the gospel, the truth of what Jesus has done and who he is, has come to you? Of all the people who have ever existed throughout history on this earth, to know that the gospel of Jesus, the truth of, of Christ, has come to us, that means God had descended. How often do we give God thanks 
for the fact that we actually got to hear about Jesus. We got to hear the truth. Anyone who's saved here this morning, you're saved because the truth came to you. Found you. How awesome is that? And Paul's saying it here. Listen, Colossians, those believers who are in the church, praise God. Give him thanks because the gospel has come to you. You heard and you believed and God is the one who did it. Oh, man. To know that God is that good and gracious, that he would bring the word of truth to us so that we might hear and believe. Paul says this is the glorious gospel that has been given. And by the way, that's a cause for celebration. I don't care how bad your day is. I don't care how bad your day is. It is a cause for celebration to know that the gospel made it to you. And now think about the people you know who have never heard it. Folks, I hate to break it to you. I know we're in the South. I know everybody's supposed to know the gospel. Most don't. Even people who spend time in church often don't know the gospel. They don't know the good news, the good news of Jesus and what he's done. We can't assume everyone around us knows it. We who have received, who have, who, the, the word of truth has come to us, the gospel has been brought to us and we've trusted in him. How could we not share that with someone else who's maybe never heard it before? See, the glorious celebration of the gospel coming to us should work itself out in us taking it to someone else. And notice he says that this, this gospel is producing fruit. The work of Jesus is producing fruit. He says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Not only had the Colossians experienced and come to hear the truth of the gospel and trust and believe in Christ, but it's also, Paul tells us, spreading all over the known world. It's bearing fruit elsewhere and increasing likewise. He says, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. See, that's, there's Epaphras who's entered into this, uh, the discussion who is most likely the pastor of the church in Colossae, who was saved most likely under Paul's preaching and has now been preaching the gospel. Which gospel? The one gospel. The same gospel Paul preached, Peter preaches, is the same gospel that apparently Epaphras has been teaching and preaching in the church. Paul does a great job of encouraging him. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. See, what seems to have happened is Epaphras has gone to visit Paul in his imprisonment. And while he's there, Epaphras has been telling Paul about what's been going on in the church. And even Epaphras, as a relatively new convert and, and, and uh, pastor over the church in a relatively new church, he's explaining things that are happening within the church. And now Paul is responding through this letter. And he lifts Epaphras up as a faithful minister on their behalf. And he says, he has made known to us your love in the spirit. Oh, there is nothing better than when a pastor can brag on the love of the people that he shepherds. Listen, folks, I, can, I, can I tell you something? I don't say this to be puffed up. I don't say this to be arrogant. But I do, I want you to know, I, I talk about y'all behind your back. But what I talk about you all when I talk to people is I talk about how loving y'all are. I talk about how gracious y'all are. I've had other people tell me how loving and gracious y'all are. And I've shared that with other people. 
It's the same thing Epaphras comes to Paul and he speaks of the love that the Colossian believers have. Oh, that's such a good thing. What, what thanksgiving he gives to God for the fact that not only has the gospel taken root, but he can see fruit of it. And the Epaphras, the pastor, is going and telling Paul just how much they love Jesus and love one another. What a beautiful thing. And thanksgiving belongs to God because of that. Secondly, we see the prayer of intercession in verse 9. So he starts with the prayer of thanksgiving, giving thanks to God for the salvation of those in Colossae. But now he gives the prayer of intercession. He says, and so, which is a way of building on what he's already said. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Heard about what? The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of these people. The work of the Spirit in bringing the gospel and changing hearts. And Paul says, since we've heard of that, we have not ceased to pray for you. And what does he pray for them about? What does he ask God to do? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So one of the things that Paul prays for them is that they would have the provision of God. And not just material provision, but they would have spiritual truth and understanding. That they would know and be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now this is interesting because just so you know, the false teachers in the church who are trying to lead people away from the centrality and supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus are teaching that you can have a greater fullness if you just listen to their mystical teaching and follow it. Interesting that Paul says, I pray to God that you may be filled with the truth of God. Not with some strange fullness that these guys are offering you. Not some mystical understanding you can have if you just follow certain teachers. He says, I pray God will give you a greater understanding of the truth and that you would be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding. While the false teachers are offering up this bogus fullness that they can have as if they're lacking something in Jesus. Paul says, I pray that God would give you full understanding and spiritual wisdom. There is no other source. He's saying you don't need other teachers to teach you some other fullness. You have God, you have Christ, and he's enough. And what's the purpose for which he desires them to be filled with all knowledge? This fuller understanding of the glorious truths of Christ that are centered around his redemptive work. Why does he pray that? Why does he want them to be filled? Verse 10 so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What does God desire for us as Christians? He desires for us to walk in a manner worthy of him, fully pleasing him. Our job as Christians is not to please ourselves or to do for ourselves. Our job as Christians is to please God and to walk in a manner worthy of him. That's the intended result. J.B. Lightfoot says this, quote, the end of all knowledge, the apostle would say, is conduct, uh, uh, end quote. The whole point of having knowledge was not simply to store it up in your brain, but that it would lead to conduct that would please God. Kent Hughes goes on to say this, quote, from the apostle's perspective, a deep, growing knowledge of Christ and his will is of the greatest importance to the spiritual life of all Christians, end quote. Did you know that the greatest importance for you, if you're going to walk in a way that pleases God, is to have a deep and growing knowledge of Jesus and his will? 
How are you going to know that? How are you going to have that? Read this. Right? We don't read this just so God won't strike us dead. Right? We don't read it just so God won't be angry at us. We read this because within it is the truth of God, which leads to a fuller understanding of Christ and his redemptive work that is meant to lead to a greater walking in righteousness that brings glory to God and pleases him. And in order for you to walk in a way that pleases God, you need to be filled with the knowledge of the truth and of Christ's work. You need to know what pleases him in order to walk it. And so our desire as Christians should be to have, a, to have spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So let me finally ask, and we'll close on this. What does that walk look like? Right? If God intends for you to walk in a way that pleases him, you would probably want to ask, well, what does that walk look like? I'm glad you asked. He gives it to us in these verses. He does so by giving, and if you're going to take notes, this is really, really helpful. He gives it to us in four participles that link together that tell us what the walk that pleases the Lord looks like. You ready? Yes, we're ready. Okay, great. Number one, the walk that pleases the Lord bears fruit in every good work. Verse 10, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That as we walk we are bearing fruit as we live righteous lives. That God is producing fruit in the midst of it. And God intends for his people to bear fruit. That you would be different, live different, act different because of what Christ has done. It pleases the Lord for you to bear fruit in every good work. Number two, not only bearing fruit in every good work, but also increasing in the knowledge of of God. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You need to increase in your knowledge of God. I don't care how many classes I have. I don't care how many degrees I get. What I need every day is to increase in the knowledge of God. That will please God. As I increase in my knowledge of him. How am I going to do that? Again, by reading his word, meditating on his word. Uh, going over and over again what God has revealed to us in his word. To grow and to see the spirit use the word of God to increase my understanding and my knowledge of God. Number three. So we bear fruit in every good work. We increase in the knowledge of God. And then number three, being strengthened with all power. You are to be strengthened. With all power. You know what's interesting about that? That's a passive verb. A passive participle. You know what that means? It's done to you. You don't just stir up your own strength. This isn't suck it up and have greater willpower. To be strengthened with all power means God's going to have to do that. 
And God promises to do that for his people. That he would give you strength with all power. Where does it come from? Look what he says in verse 11. According to his glorious might. So God gives us strength to live out what he tells us to and calls us to in Jesus. That when we trust in Christ and we're going to walk after him, God is the one who strengthens us to be able to do it. And one of the things that we are to do as believers, one of the ways that marks our walk as being pleasing to God is we're relying on his strength and we're asking God for his strength to be able to continue to live out what he's called us to because it's hard to do. But with Christ, we have power to please God in what we do. And then finally, give thanks to the Father, verse 12. So we're told that we are to bear fruit in every good work. We're to increase the knowledge of God. We're to be strengthened with all power so that we might have endurance and patience with joy. And then we also are to give thanks. So not only is Paul praying that God would give them provision to walk after him, but he's also now praying that they would praise God for it. Giving thanks to the Father. Why? Why does God deserve praise and thanks? Well, you realize that all this bearing fruit and increasing in knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power and giving thanks to the Father, that is only possible because Jesus died in our place. See, that we might be strengthened with all, with, with, with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Who in the world gave us the ultimate example of endurance and patience with joy? Christ, and specifically Jesus on his way to the cross. He demonstrated great power from God for all endurance and patience with joy. So you know who gets thanks? God does. And notice Paul gives the basis for it. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has qualified you. He has delivered us. And he has transferred us. Those are past tense words. And Paul is talking to the believers in Colossae and he's saying God has done that definitively for you. If you're a Christian here this morning, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has definitively delivered you from the domain of darkness and he has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son, God gets all the thanks because God is the one who did all of that. He qualified you. He delivered you. He transferred you. And I can't help but think that God's redeeming work has been displayed throughout all of Scripture as we've been studying. Because this idea of delivering us from the domain of darkness, that is Exodus-type language. That is being set free from bondage to slavery, to sin. You know what else is interesting? To be qualified to share in the inheritance, you know that's Old Testament wording. Who was the inheritance stored up for in the Old Testament? What was the picture? It was usually used, normally used in reference to the Jewish people. They were the ones who had the inheritance, and they were the ones who were going to receive it. Isn't it interesting? 
that in the church in Colossae, which is made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ, that Paul says God has definitively qualified all of you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And what Paul's doing is he's saying those same promises that God gave his people back in the Old Testament. Guess what, Gentiles? You're also included in that. You also share in that. You, God has qualified you to through the work of Jesus Christ. And so he gets all the thanks. Man, I could spend weeks, and I won't, but I could spend weeks on verse 13 and 14. This is what God has done. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, out of the depths of, the, of our sin and death, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is all speaking of God's redeeming work through Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross. And the only way that this is true of us is if we believe in Christ. It's not about what you can do with your own hands. It's not about what you can do with your own power. It's about what Christ has already done for us in our place. And because of that, God deserves thanks. And unashamedly from the beginning of the letter, Paul has laid out for them that Jesus is central to salvation and to holy living that pleases God. You cannot have salvation. You cannot live a holy life that pleases God apart from Jesus. He is central to all of it. You can't do it apart from him. You and I this morning need to realize we all need Jesus. All of us. The gospel isn't just for people who aren't saved. Jesus is central to salvation, so it is true that, that people who don't trust in him need Jesus in order to be saved. But Jesus is also central to holy living, which means we as believers in the room, we still need Jesus. Hey, thank you, Eddie. You need Jesus every day. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You need Jesus every single day because he alone gives you the power to walk in a way that pleases God. Listen, if we don't hold Jesus to be central to everything that we do, we are sharing with people a false gospel, which does not save and does not help them, doesn't bring them any closer to God. What we need to do and be about is constantly putting Christ before people. That the good news that came to us, we're sharing with them because we believe honestly that Jesus is supreme and central not only to salvation but also to holy living. So every morning God gives us, every day God gives us, must be based and centered around the work of Jesus Christ and his glory. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that often. Because the circumstances and cares of this world often try to cloud that out. But it's helpful to bring us all back to what is primary. And what Paul does for this church is said, it's not about mystical teaching, it's not about some greater fullness you can find elsewhere. What you and I need is to see the centrality of Jesus in salvation and in holy living and to give God the thanks he deserves for that. So this morning, I want every single one of you to know and to trust in the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. And if you have, to live every day knowing that you need Christ for every good thing that you're going to do. For every bit of living that God has called you to, you need Christ in that. May God see in this place today 
a dependence and a love of Jesus above all else. Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that in Christ we have everything we need. We're not lacking anything in Jesus. You have given us everything in Christ that we need to live and to honor you. And so, Father, I pray this morning that for everyone who's listening to this, I pray that they would see the centrality of Jesus to salvation. That no one can be saved apart from trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross in their place. And so, Father, if there's anyone who's listening to this who is trying to be a good person or trying to earn favor with you, Father, they would see that there's no amount of goodness we can do that will pay for our sin, but Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, his perfect life are sufficient to cover all of our sin and to make us right before you and to pay the penalty for our sin. So, Father, may they trust in you. May they trust in Jesus alone. May they trust in his finished work on the cross. And, Father, as Christians this morning, may we also see that we desperately need Jesus even now. That Jesus doesn't just get us into the kingdom. Jesus is the one who helps us to walk in righteousness and to live in a way that honors you. And so, Father, I pray that this morning Jesus would receive the praise he deserves. And, Father, you might receive the glory you deserve for sending your son to die. And so I pray that this place would be filled with a love and an awe of Christ and his beautiful sacrificial death for us. And, Father, we proclaim today as Christians that we would be nowhere without him and that he is the only thing we need to give honor and glory to you and to walk in a way that pleases you. So, Father, help us to do that today. Father, for those who are trying to add Jesus on to their life or uh, for him to be a part of their life, God, help them to see that there is no part of life that is ever separated from Christ, that he is central to everything that we do and help us to live in ways that demonstrate that. Father, help us as Christians to be joyous in knowing that you are the one who has done all of this. You have caused us to be born again. You have purchased us into your family. And because of that, may we give you praise and honor. This morning, as we respond to you, God, I pray you would stir up our hearts to love Jesus more and to cling to him closer. Father, help us to do that in the midst of a world that seeks to draw us away and to entice us after other loves. May we simply pursue Christ and give him our adoration and affection. God, do that today. Stir up in our hearts. Help us to forsake sin. God, if there's sin we need to repent of, help us to do it this morning. If there are new ways that we need to be walking after you, ways that we haven't been doing that bring you glory and honor, Father, help us to do that this morning. Father, if we've been trying to walk by our own power, help us to repent of that and to see that we desperately need Christ this morning. Do all of it so that you might receive more praise. Work in our hearts. We ask you, God, to do this for your own uh, praise. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.